0: Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the New Books Network. I'm Marshall Poe, the editor-in-chief of the network, and each week we pick a new book and we interview the author of that book, and this week I'm pleased to say we have Robin Greer on the show, and we'll be talking about her terrific book, The Long Process of Development, Building Markets and States in Pre-Industrial England, Spain, and Their Colonies. She co-wrote this book with Jerry Huff. Again, the title of the book is The Long Process of Development, and some of you may know that I'm a Russian historian, and I have to say that it's certainly the case that Russian development took a long time, so I'm in complete agreement with at least the title of the book, probably the whole (laughs) book. It's an excellent (laughs) book. Robin, welcome to the show.
1: Thank you so much for having me.
0: Absolutely. My pleasure. Could you begin the interview by telling us a little bit about yourself?
1: Uh, Absolutely. I'm a professor of economics and international area studies at the University of Oklahoma. Um, Almost all the classes I teach teach... Revolve around economic development, uh, but my focus is on Latin America, and in Latin America, mostly Mexico. That's where I started um, my work in graduate school, and it's um, really kept my interest ever since uh, the pl- the political economy of Latin America.
0: Hmm. So um, let me begin with uh, the following observation. Uh, when sure. I was, I won't say young, but when I was in graduate school many moons ago. We, whoever we is, divided the world up into three areas, the first world, the second world, and the third world. The first world, of course, was us, because obviously we're going to be first. Right. Uh, the exactly. second world we're
2: making the definition, right, so.
0: was them, and that is uh, the communist uh, bloc countries. And then the third world was everybody else. Uh, right. uh, it strikes me that that um, way of categorizing the world in terms of development really has, has now gone away. What has replaced it?
1: I think that's absolutely true. It, it seems to have become um, politically incorrect. I would say that makes, you know, third world um, makes it sound somewhat derogatory and backward. Uh, we like our terms much more hopeful, optimistic at this point. And second world, of course, communist world, has um, mostly transitioned away from communism, so we need different terms for that, too. Um, this is something that I... Um, somewhat struggle with in my comparative economic systems class because textbooks used to just used to be very clear. You had the capitalist world, first world, communist world, second world, and like you said, everybody else, third world. Now they don't want to categorize it as such, but there is a big difference between the kind of legacy that communism left and so the kind of problems that post-Soviet countries have to deal with as opposed to um, you say developing countries in Africa. And so it's worth making a distinction. I think nowadays, we tend to use developed versus developing, and developing, like I said, is sort of hopeful, optimistic, you know that they're they're going they're getting better. um We also use the term emerging markets, and those typically used for ones that are um, superstar countries or ones we hope are superstar countries tend to be like big countries like Brazil or mexico um and they're merging. I don't know merging exactly towards what. I'm not sure, but um, typically we tend to be dynamic countries that trade a lot and that are um, growing in terms of GDP.
0: Hmm. So I was going to ask you what development was, but I thought of something even more interesting and controversial to say. So how do you like that? Okay. Um, Perfect. Uh, the um, the developed countries. Uh, that's the first world countries. That's us again. Um, mm-hmm. Is development just a polite way of saying Americanization? Because isn't it the case that all the metrics of developed country are basically American or European? So couldn't you just say, why don't you just say Americanization? You know, high GDP, cars flying around, eat a lot, uh, you know, consume a lot of of, of petrochemicals, um, you know, go vote when you want to and and you know buy all your clothes at the gap I guess I don't know um, but you see what I'm saying I mean isn't yeah, it, isn't well, it the case that you. it's just that's what it is I mean but go ahead
1: oh this is yeah I mean this is a big something that we struggle with and I think something we should struggle with um, and also came up during the process of writing this book too is we don't want to make development seem like some linear progress Well, where, where the Shangri-La is America or you know the western world So it's like, well, we define what development is and all these countries that are underdeveloped, in some sense have been put in this category of failing or, you know, not not doing as well as we did or not, you know, being further along, you know, they're not having caught up or... So we're, you know, we're defining what it means by development and there's been a lot of backlash, not necessarily in economics, but in other disciplines, say anthropology, say that, you know, Maybe some of these communities have their own de- ideas of what development is, and it doesn't match up with what you consider development. So they mm-hmm. may have very different ideas of how they conceive time, what they think is fair, what they think is prosperous, and it may have nothing to do with GDP. And this is a really big issue that we talk about in my, in my classes, too, mm-hmm. because my students in international area studies, they tend to be... They tend to be great students, just very idea, very sort of idealistic, but you know really want to make a difference. But at the same time, don't want to impose. They don't want to be that person where they're imposing their ideas on other cultures. Mm-hmm. But then you run up against things like, say, we talked the other day about genital mutilation in sub-Saharan Africa. This is something that you know, for Western Westerners, is something that's you know perhaps backward or something that we recoil against. Um, so. How do you decide, you know, do you say that all cultures are equally, you know, everything they do is equally fine and we can't impose what our beliefs are? Or do you say, well, no, we have this idea of what Western, you know, what development should look like and it looks like us and you should do this. So I think it's a a really interesting philosophical question that economists should probably ask themselves more than than we do.
0: Mm -hmm. Well, I mean, just to put my cards on the table, I'm only interested in – calling things what they are. And uh, I'm not, I, I don't, I don't, you mentioned anthropologists. I don't know if they're representative of this opinion. I don't think all cultures are equal. And I think if the whole world became America, that wouldn't be a bad thing at all. I've been to a lot of places overseas and they like McDonald's. Every place I've been, they like it. So, you know, I'm all for indigenous cultures. They're great. But I'm also all for uh, people having enough to eat and voting. <laughs> yeah, it's um,
1: one of the most interesting parts, it wasn't the main focus of the book, but there's this book that I recommend in my class on Mexican economic development it's called God's Middle Finger and it's this journalist who goes through like the, the toughest, roughest parts of northern Mexico and he meets this guy who's trying to help out the mata Indians where, you know, their land has been stolen from drug cartels and they have very little education and so he raises money in the United States for these people to to help them, but he really struggles with the fact that he can't mention to people in the United States that like their culture is not something that some of the things. For instance, they want their they want their land back not because for you know traditional growing and that kind of stuff. They want to grow the poppies to make the opium. They're furious <laughs> that they're not getting the drug money. They have no interest in educating yeah. kids. They don't see any interest in that. <laughs> And uh, so they want the they want the land back for drugs. They want uh, don't care about education, and they have. Um, oh boy! I hope I get in the name of the Indian uh, culture right. But they have a culture of of high intoxication, where they even give infants Ooh, alcohol, That's and terrific. it's typical that adults will black out like three times and three times yeah. a week. Yeah. And so this guy's trying to like present this to American audiences, saying you know these this poor Native group needs your help, without mentioning the fact that. Boy. Most Americans would not be happy with what they want to do, use the money
0: for. They really do need our help.
1: <laughs>
0: exactly. <laughs> so, yeah, I mean, the, the whole sort of, uh, uh, I, I guess, premise of development studies is, is sort of, it's, it doesn't really take cultural relativism, so to say, at least in a very strong sense, very seriously. And that's okay. But can we say that, uh, uh, to, can we boil down development to saying that what we're really talking about is about progress for democratic capitalism? You know, sort of well-regulated yes. markets and that kind of thing. I mean, that's what we're talking about here.
1: That's exactly what we're talking
0: Parliaments about. Parliaments and markets, and I, you know. I, I just
1: have to say, too, that I agree with you. I mean, one of the reasons that different countries try to block American imports, say, of movies and, and food and stuff is that because people really like it. Yeah, I know. And I'm not saying that's good, but, I mean, it's it's – it's very popular yeah, wherever it goes.
0: Yeah, I know, I know. But, well, I could talk I could talk for a long time about this, but uh, uh, without being chauvinistic, by the way, because I'm a big critic of lots of things in American culture. So, um, you, you're, uh, again, the title of your book is a Long Process of Development. How long? Well, I also, it's sort of
1: an inside joke. I, I wanted the title of The Long Process of Writing This Book. <laughs>
0: yeah, uh, well, that could be the subtitle of every academic book.
1: Oh. Uh, but well, let me go back a little ways and say that when I was a graduate student, I got really interested in the political economy of Latin America. And I wanted to know, um, Douglas Norris has written a lot about the Spanish colonial legacy and how negative it was in Latin America. And I wanted to investigate whether this is really true, whether Latin American countries have done sort of more or less how we would expect after independence, and it's just that the U.S. and Canada tended to be superstars and make them look bad. Or is it the fact that there was really something to the Spanish colonial legacy. And so that's what my dissertation was about. And I've got, you know, written some papers that came out of the dissertation on that. But this book was trying to look further and sort of turn Douglas North's argument on its head. And we say that it wasn't, you know, Spain was actually a very weak state. And we can get into this more, but that the legacy is not the one that. That Douglas North was presenting, and but to go back, we I mean we really want to look at our argument is that some of the political and economic legacy of Mexico and the United States comes from the you know the, the state of development of England and Spain at that time, and I'm using Spain very generally because a lot of times during this time period it really wasn't Spain; it was Castile, or you know, um, it was a, what is now a province of Spain, but. We found during this process that if we want to look at the political and economic legacy of you know, d- political and economic development of of England and Spain, we had to go back pretty far. Mm-hmm. And um, I think I stopped my co-author Jerry Huff when he started in like the the thousands, the eleven hundreds. I was like, oh my gosh, <laughs> mm-hmm. we can't go back to like the you know one A.D. or something like that. Um, we had to sort of choose a point, and we did. We chose a point where we thought that Spain and England were actually very similar, those regions, and were good, good points of comparison. But this is something, and um, I know that you'll probably appreciate this, having studied Russia, but List North had argued that um, economists seem to ignore the fact that development takes time. We mm-hmm. want answers. We want results right now, but it takes a long time. And we knew that we were going to have to trace out sort of the key parts of why it took so long and Mm -hmm. why change is so difficult and look at um, England and Spain and then how that transferred into the kind of colonial legacies they left in the U.S. and Mexico. Mm -hmm.
0: Mm -hmm. Because one of the empirical premises of the book is that in the English case, they developed um, what was a a kind of, mm, I, I don't know if I should call it democratic capitalism. Quite early, they might have been the first to do so, and that their colonies... Uh, having received this institutional legacy, seem to have prospered thereby, those being the United States and Canada and Australia. And I suppose, I don't know, does South Africa count? Um, Maybe India, does it count? I don't know. And then you look at Spain, uh, which was similarly configured about 1100, uh, which did mm-hmm. not, and, it, you know, they had a parliament and everything, too. I forget what they called it. I, I wish I the could. The Cortes. The Cortes, yeah. And, and, yeah. You know, uh, but it did not, it was really not Spain, it was Castile, and and then, you know, the, it, the, their colonies did not prosper in the same way, and this is a very interesting finding. I mean, it's a... Yeah. It's, yeah. Um,
1: and the, the original argument in economics was, it was because Spain was extremely bureaucratic, highly centralized, tried to regulate everything, um, and our argument is that it's actually just the opposite. It's the fact that Spain was so weak and had so little control. They tried to bureaucratize. They tried to regulate. They did a very poor job of that. Um, that they, you know, because they were weak, they tried to try to highly regulate everything. While the English system was became a much more centralized, much more um, capable government, and because of that, they were actually able to open up markets in the Atlantic world. And that led to um, big developments in, in both economic and political in the future United States.
0: Mm-hmm. Now uh, I said I wasn't going too deep in history, but uh, d- just to talk about it a little bit, I, I, if you look at um, England and, and Spain and the, I don't know, 16th century, they're at war a lot. They look, they look very similar for all the world. They've colonized the new world. Uh, they both have, um, at least well by the seventeenth century, certainly people that claim to be absolutist monarchs they say mm, right is, right uh-huh and um but but what really them? Differenti- i mean that's uh, five hundred years after you start what what differentiates them then there were two putatively absolutist monarchs, and you're saying one isn't really very absolute at all,
1: right, one isn't very yes, and um let me give you one of my favorite examples of that, and that is um so. I think probably most of the audience has heard of the Spanish Armada oh, yeah. and, the, and the attack on on England, right? So the idea that um, that they were going to—I'm not exactly sure exactly what they <laughs> what they were going to go for—but the idea was they were going to attack England with this um, incredible naval fleet. So this was at the end of the 1500s, in um, King Philip in Spain. He had a defense department, and it had only one person in it. It Well, it had one secretary and a couple of clerks that helped that secretary, and none of them had any military experience. Um, None of them had ever been in the military. None of them had ever run the military. So when he decides that he's going to launch the Spanish Armada to conquer England, he doubles his defense department to two, Uh one for the Army and one for the Navy. And all of the ships, almost all of the ships, were actually rented from Genoa, so they weren't even Spanish ships, and which I, I think that leads to some funny ideas. too, like, you know, when you rent a car and they say, don't take it into Mexico or don't take it into Italy if you're in Europe or something. I'm imagining that conversation with the Genoans like, yes, we rented your ships, but we took them to attack England, and mm-hmm. they're all at the bottom of the sea. Yeah. So most of them were sunk, And but Philip, King Philip didn't try to rebuild any kind of merchant Which Elizabeth absolutely did. That was one of the keys that we found: is that she rapidly expanded her armed merchant fleet. At the same time, Um, it was sort of a part private, part um, part public merchant fleet. That um, actually, she actually encouraged not to. (laughs) Not sure we would encourage this nowadays, but she encouraged these um, these merchant men to. essentially be pirates. Mm -hmm. Uh, And she had rules, there were sort of informal rules that you couldn't, you couldn't attack Spanish ships too much because then Spain would try to, you know, start a war, but attack them just up to that point. And so they were allowed, pirates had to turn over some of their booty to her, but they were allowed to keep a fair amount of the booty too. So it was like this interesting private-public partnership Mm -hmm. of piracy. And there were, pirates were very highly lauded. There were songs sung about them, about you know, taking down the Spanish, and so um, I think that gives a little bit of an idea of you know just how little bureaucracy, uh, what kind of like a patrimonial system that Spain had at that time, and and also the the bureaucracy that they had to deal with for the Indies was none of the people had ever up until the Bourbons, none of them in the in the seventeen hundreds, none of them had actually been to the New World, none of them had any actual experience there. And they tended to, um, they, what's the best way to put this? They, even in the new world, the administrative units were huge and there was very little bureaucracy. There was very little control. So for what we call Mexico now, New Spain, and they're not the same because New Spain actually included most of the Western United States, Mm -hmm. included Florida, included Venezuela, the Caribbean, and the Philippines, so, at the time, New Mexico was about fifteen times larger than Western Europe, and until late seventeen hundreds, it had no provincial institutions to coordinate sort of administrative lines of command. There was one viceroy with a couple of clerks. You sense the pattern here: a couple of clerks for that entire territory. I remember reading at one point where the viceroy was petitioning the king to get some more secretaries because everything had to be written by hand, of course. And this is a huge territory to to try to control. And in this territory, they had three different tax agencies, Um, one for agriculture, one for the Native American villages, one for what they call the Spanish sector. Um, None of these had any officials that could be appointed or removed by the viceroy. So the viceroy had no control. He had no real military force in the core areas of the colonies. He didn't have any power really over taxation. And he had no bureaucracy. So this idea that Spain was this sort of overwhelming... Um, you know imposing bureaucracy that was constantly um you know shadowed people and it was just really not true at all Spain was extremely weak and they had very little control over what happened in their colonies by mm-hmm. the 1600s i mean most i think the at least at 1.50% of mexico's silver which was its primary export 50% was being smuggled out to um european countries mm-hmm. so The idea that they had this highly regulated trading system, they tried, but they didn't actually succeed. And the argument is one of the reasons they tried is because they had such a weak state. They couldn't, they didn't have control over taxation and they couldn't have a free market system like the English did.
0: Mm -hmm. Well, how did the English manage to uh, develop this um, administration, this very well organized, I don't know if it's well organized, and I don't even know if it's an administration or bureaucracy, I don't know what to call it. How did they come to govern so effectively, where the uh, Spanish could not?
1: Part of it was a little bit um, geography, and I'm going to try to simplify way down over lots, lots, many centuries of history, (laughs) and lots of details that are in the book, but are in the book. But um, in England, they tended to focus. The king originally tended to be sort of the the most powerful warlord in the London area. And really focused, the, the king focused on getting power over London. And it was like many, many, many hundreds of years before they could get, you know, capable administration and rest of what we call England now. It took a long time. But they focused on getting a fair amount of power, taxation ability. One of the reasons they were able to do this is they allied with the Hanseatic merchants, which did have military power in a sort of – I don't know what you would call it in modern days because it would be almost like a um, contracting military power, but it gave them power of taxation. Mm
2: -hmm. The
1: Hanseatic merchants made sure that no one – or tried to make sure that no one was smuggling, and they were actually able to impose, enforce, and collect wool taxes because of their alliance with the Hanseatic merchants. So they focused on a very small area. And once they got power over that area and started to get a little bit of administration, then they went, they started to branch out. In Spain, it almost hurt it because it was so, there were so many different ports. The king was afraid of, um, you know, choosing one port over another because causing backlash in other ports and kind of took on too much. Was, you know, it took on so, so much territory that they were unable to really control any of that territory and
0: um mm-hmm. well this is precisely what happened in russia as well oh, okay is that um you know when muscovy was quite small it, it might have been relatively intensively governed and maybe even well governed once it became a continent then it was uh, impossible to govern it and uh, no uh, they they did not have the means to uh, to bring it under a control. So what they did is they ran from one area to a, another area putting out fires. And that, that's not a good way yep. to develop institutions. And the best way to put out a fire is to kill everybody. Um, right. Because that's really your only tool. I mean, you can't negotiate with them or anything because there's another fire you have to go to over here. And so you have to quickly exactly. get the army over there now. Uh, so you don't have time to negotiate or set something up. You simply, I don't know, just be brutal. And, and then you go someplace else. And so the Absolutely. result by the 19th century is that the place is incredibly undergoverned. Uh, yes. But by by American standards, even I mean, there just really aren't many uh, as a proportion of the population, or as a proportion of the territory. There just aren't that many people running the place, and just not enough. There's there's just yeah. not enough of them, and uh, it, it's a it's a terrible situation, and it's arguably the situation today. I mean, the place is still undergoverned. Um, yeah, uh, yeah. Go ahead. I'm well, sorry. Really I'm sorry analogy. to interrupt. Yeah. yeah.
1: No, no. That's that's exactly what we're talking about. That's a that's a that's a fantastic analogy. Yeah, I mean, if you're stretched, up too yeah,
0: that. oh, go ahead. I was going to say, if you're just, you know, they were just stretched too thin, and yeah. you know, this is something that happens to businesses, and it happens to baseball teams, and it happens That's to right. lots of different kinds of organizations. They just take on more than they can, they can actually digest, and and it's the end of them. <laughs> it's The end yeah, of a lot of them, at least. Yeah, go ahead.
1: Yeah, well, a lot of what the king of Spain, you know, I think some economists tended to just believe too much. The the kings own – the Royal interpretation of events because you know they'd be like, oh, we're collecting these taxes, but if you actually look at it, they're they're not collecting the taxes. I mean, they're sometimes it's like forced gifts. <laughs> sometimes they're you know they're uh, farming. The, most of the time, for most of this period, they're farming out those taxes. Um, a lot of what they count as taxes aren't what we would con- what we would consider taxes nowadays. So there's a mythology, I think, about you know, the strong state. But it, when you actually look at it, you're right. It was totally undergoverned. And same thing, like I was saying, in, in new Spain, you know, you have, it's a huge amount of territory. Yeah, it really, you know, it really is. Guy.
0: Yeah, it really is. And if you look at it on a map, it just very, it's very, it doesn't give you a good impression of what's actually going on because it's so large. It's, you know, it's, it's a lot of, yeah. it's a lot of North America. And, and then if you think about, you know, just a little fact, not to bring up too much history, but at this time, Philip II. uh, also controlled the Netherlands. Now, what the hell were they doing there? And had a claim on the Naples. On the hung, he had a claim on the Austrian territories as well. What, yeah, what sure. in the world? How could he? You know how? How could you ever control such a territory? You know, it's just not really possible.
1: It's absolutely true, and they did. And somehow they, in the literature, they really managed to seem like they were all powerful, or you know that. Um, but when you actually look at it, it's sort of like a. An emperor has no clothes type situation or a paper tiger or um you know there really wasn't a lot of administration going on there really yeah. wasn't a lot of control and if you just look at like where the capital cities were put in in latin america spain for one thing wasn't they were interested in taking riches out of of the region and something that I think we forget is that Spain went first in the colonization and they got what were considered the good parts Mm -hmm. and the good parts were the ones with gold ones with silver ones with lots of Native Americans that you couldn't
0: you know, actually exploit it's funny, I'm sorry to interrupt, but I always uh, you know, we're here, I'm in New England right now and I always joke to people that the Spanish knew everything about the area, which is now Massachusetts but they considered it uninhabitable and they weren't wrong
2: (laughs) (laughs) Well, to itself,
1: <laughs> it's true they had better weather. They had they had better everything. And so Spain went second. I mean, Britain went second and got like what yeah. w- were considered like the the crumbs. Yeah. Um, these were not considered to be good places. They no. tended out tended to turn into like <laughs> to have good institutions. But at the yeah. time, um, estimates of income, Mexico was quite a bit richer than um, sort of the British colonies and. and we're not even talking about Canada. My gosh, when, when Britain decided to to get Canada um, from France, they were just made yeah. fun of. They yeah. were saying, "No, Canada's a pile of snow. Yeah. Nobody has ever developed anything at that level of latitude. There's just, why would you do
0: that? And so it is today. Uh, I'm sorry. Wait. So is, <laughs> <laughs> sorry. Sorry, uh, Canadian listeners. I'm sorry.
1: Uh. <laughs> uh, and then so... Spain was mostly interested in extracting riches, and they tended to put their capital cities on like plateaus, yeah. which tended you know they didn't have problems with yellow fever and malaria that kind of thing, and it was good for defence because you could see who was coming, but very bad for trade and transport and on the other hand, you have England that replicated their experience in London, where the colonists would come to the to the mainland and they would invariably set up shop well. Most of the time, in the very beginning, they just died. Right? I mean, things did not go mm-hmm. well. But once they did establish there, they established near um, a good ocean-going port, or at the very least, a river, a navigable river that led to the ocean. And they tended to be very small. Um, they tended to be very small provinces, very small states, as mm-hmm. opposed to, say, New Spain, which was gigantic. So it's not like they needed that; they had that much um, administration and on the British mainland, but they, the the institute, the the province, the provincial, was the word I'm looking for, um, uh, um, administrative units were quite small. And so you didn't need as, um, you know, you didn't need a ton of bureaucracy like you did um, if you were trying to control a gigantic territory like the King of Spain was.
2: Mm-hmm,
1: mm-hmm. And this, of course, is going to be really helpful for trade, right? Because yeah,
0: well, I was going to come trade, to trade. They, yeah, okay, yeah. Go I was ahead. going to come to trade, and you come have a paradox here. At least it seemed to me by looking at your book, and that is that uh, you know neoliberal uh, economics, as it was kind of create or recreated, I suppose, in the in the twentieth century, says you know small states are the state that governs least governs best, at least in terms of economics, and that may be true in this context. But I think what your book shows is that. A certain amount of state involvement is just absolutely necessary in order to create those well-regulated markets that Adam Smith knew all about. And in a place like Spain or Russia, the Russian state was very well designed to take rents. That's what it was for. You know, it was entirely for that. And it didn't do anything else. It did not administer justice. It did not clean the streets. It did not build streets. It took rents, informed taxes. Just like
2: Spanish authorities.
0: You know, well, except that Spanish had a really good place to take rents, and the Russians did not. Right? Okay. Yeah. <laughs> but can you talk a little bit about that difference?
1: Uh, yeah, that's, um, that's a good point, and it's something that was sort of surprising to me as I was going through, as was working on this book, because I come from a very—I have to admit—I come from a very libertarian background, and most of what I had said in development was government screwing things up and I felt like a lot of times that, um, you know, the governments were creating problems, that government policies, they were over-regulating, they were creating uncertainty, and so my background is sort of more towards, you know, economic liberalism and political liberalism, liberalism in the old sense, and, and I'm, the more we're researching this book, we realize that, like, Economists don't really know that much about how to build markets. And you actually do need a capable state. You, need, you do need an administration that works. You need, you need to have state capability. You need to have a justice system. You need to have roads. There's things that you need um, to have a modern market, which I had never really thought about. I don't think most economists think about. Um, and take your area of the world in the post-communist states um, there's a great, we have a quote actually from Alan Greenspan which is a little
0: yeah, sorry, strange that's, to hear him in this sorry, context 1977
1: yeah. <laughs> right. but he says, Alan Greenspan says um, like we had, Turns out we had no idea what we were doing we just sort of thought that we would take away the communism and Marcus would just spring up yeah. and we knew there would be growing pains but I mean the idea I'm, I'm not, actually these aren't his words but this is sort of the idea that, that we just thought that markets would happen naturally and it didn't matter if you had strong states and states are you know the problem with the communist states is the states were too strong and so we get rid of that and voila we have modern markets and that's not what happens yeah and you end up getting you know kleptocracies and a mm-hmm. massive corruption and so that was a real learning experience for me that it was the strength of the english state now i think it's probably nonlinear, right i mean i don't think that the, the stronger the state necessarily, the better the market. But, uh, the, but the state has to have some kind of capabilities to really be able to have uh, free trade and to create a mo- modern-looking market.
0: Right. Well, I mean, if you just think about the American Revolution or the Boston Tea Party, it was over a stamp tax. A stamp yeah. tax is pretty sophisticated, right? Yeah. That's, not, that's not just nothing. That didn't just grow up right. overnight. Somebody didn't walk in and say, hey, I think we should have a stamp tax. Right. The Russians couldn't do a stamp tax in 1750. 17- you know, sixty-eight. Are you kidding me? Right. They couldn't do anything like that. So, uh, you know, even there, it's that's pretty well point. regulated. You know, a stamp tax. Come on, I mean, that's you know, people are thinking, yeah, sure, of course, we have to pay taxes, but it's too much, and you know, that, that's not the terms in which Russians thought. I don't know about Spanish, but they didn't think that way. They thought no. you owe the czar, and that's it. And he says how much, right. <laughs> and if you don't give it, the soldiers are coming. You know, and you can run right. south onto the step like everybody else. You know, <laughs> but I was thinking about you know, we can see unregulated markets in operation in American inner cities in drug markets. And the same thing happens mm. to them every time they consolidate. Right. And mm. a bunch of people get killed right. and, and that's what happens to them. Right. It, it's yeah. not as if they say, okay, you get this street corner and I get that street corner. And well, we'll have the police come and make sure everybody, you know, is having fair and equal, uh, you know, competition. And if we feel like you're monopolizing, we'll go to court and, you know, all this other stuff, we'll have standards <laughs> right. for our products and, you know, that kind of thing. We'll make sure we protect the consumer. That's not the way it works. There's no regulation. So it goes to guns immediately. It turns to violence, yeah, because there's no other ways to, way to enforce. Well, and that's what happened in Russia in 1991. Mm, immediately, yeah. that's what happened. It was like yeah. there, there used to be a bunch of sellers, and now there's one. And right. you can't sell anything without that guy telling you you can sell something. And that's it. And that's yeah. a badly regulated market right there. <laughs> <laughs>
1: that's a very good point. Yeah. And to bring it back historically, some... Um, because in the in the English colonial system, Englishmen were allowed to trade freely in the empire and in the Atlantic Empire. And if you were a colonial merchant or shipper, you were considered an Englishman, so you could they, they taxed certain goods like sugar, indigo, um, rice, uh, tobacco. But other than that, they call them enumerated the goods. Other than that, you could trade with no tax, no mm-hmm. tax whatsoever. And they started. Um, trading and they it was sort of a virtuous cycle where at first they sort of had to trade in kind with caribbean countries right they, there wasn't there wasn 't any real money, so they were trading goods for goods and then they had to dispose of those goods once they got back to say new England and so then they started opening up retail trade and they started cattle ranching and they started um, they started all these different things and they became very entrepreneurial and then they were interested in better harbors and roads, so they were allowed to trade with the other States they were allowed to trade with Caribbean English uh, colonies. In Spain, they weren't allowed to trade. I mean, there was periods where they traded with uh, I'm calling Mexico, but New Spain traded with Peru, but it wasn't legal. And so Spain was constantly trying to stamp that out. So colonies were not allowed to trade with other colonies. They were not allowed to trade with any other Hmm. European countries. The convoy of Spanish um, ships were supposed to come once a year. Sometimes they didn't come for several years at a time if Spain was at war. So that's where they were only supposed to get their provisions. And yes, there was massive smuggling that went on in the 1600s, but that doesn't quite lead to an entrepreneurial culture. (laughs) Yeah. <laughs>
0: yeah, yeah. Smugglers mean, does, are not entrepreneurs, really. That's a different thing. <laughs> It does
1: it does teach us some entrepreneurship, just probably like drug trade does uh, too. Yeah, or right, thing. Yeah. Yeah. Uh-huh. Russia in 1991, it takes some entrepreneurship and some risk taking. And um, right. but there's no formal institutions. There's no judicial system. There's no. Um, it's not formalized at all. There's no recourse. Yeah. And so smuggling is not the same as creating an entrepreneurial culture that has the institutions to support it. And in fact, um, like the New Englanders were allowed to build ships for colonial shipping. And during the English Civil War, there was hardly any English ships, so they like took off. And um, I think it was by the end of the colonial period, it was like a third of the ships of England's fleet was produced by, I think it was Boston. So, and, and on the other hand, when Mexico was finally allowed to trade with the United States, when the empire was disintegrating, they found they had no shipping because they weren't allowed to do it. They had no ships, and so it's like, well, you can trade now, but you have no ships. Yeah. Um, you know, you don't have any of the sort of the, the trappings of a modern market. You just have sort of smugglers and um, this underground market. Yeah. So it's really not the, It's really not the same. Things were changing in Mexico, but that's one of the things we argue is that it, I'm not saying that independence came too soon, but they were starting to look toward the British and see the success that they had and starting to really uh, change things up. But almost immediately after that, then you have the war between Spain and France, you have Napoleon putting his brother on the Spanish throne, and then you have uh, long wars of independence. And so Mm -hmm. it it seems like the culture might have been changing, but it didn't really have time to solidify. Mm -hmm,
0: mm -hmm. Yeah, you mentioned alcohol and tobacco, and I suppose tea and coffee and these things which are, Uh, You know, they come from – some of them come from overseas, not alcohol, but uh, they are highly taxable, and the English made a fortune of taxing them. But I was thinking about what happened to them in the Russian case. In the Russian case, they didn't tax them. They just made them state monopolies.
2: (laughs) That
1: seemed like a better way,
0: a better way to go, you know, (laughs) and we know how well states run enterprises. So that's going (laughs) to work really well. well. (laughs)
1: Such a history of success. Yeah.
0: And, and, you know, it's, it's just, yeah, that's, that was just, and and it does, it was rational too, because they, you know, they knew there was no market that they could actually set up that would work well. So if they're going to get anything out of this, they're going to have to monopolize it. And that's what they did. And of course it crushed it as a market. But you know they got something out of it. And that that was good. But that that's the way they thought. You know that it was. You know, here, look, people are now uh, smoking tobacco. That's a fire to be put out quickly. We have right. to get control of that. <laughs> so, so they did. Yeah.
1: That's uh that's amazing. How many? Um, it's funny because my co-author is a a Russian expert, but on sort of more modern. Yeah, he does Russia, modern but stuff, I, I, Yeah. Yeah, it is amazing how many. Uh, great analogies there are from the Russian case. Well, the
0: Russians did this with land. They couldn't, you know, the English had a very well sort of, you know, officially, of course, all land is held of the king or queen. But that, that of course, that's just a fiction. In the Russian case, it was real. (laughs) You know, they couldn't set up a system by which people could actually have deeds that were transferable. This is, of course, in the 16th and 17th century. And so they basically just monopolized it all. They did that with labor, too. They did that with labor. They did it with the peasantry. They said, well, there's going to be serfs. You know, we can't allow a free market in labor. We'll just monopolize it. You know? Right. I mean, you know, and it worked for a while. Yeah. Until it didn't, you know, so.
1: And it comes from a, it comes from a, in some sense of a position of weakness. Exactly. And not they strength. can't,
0: they can't, they don't, they don't have the means to do it in a better way. This is all yeah. they have. And, you know, they have that hammer and everything is a nail and that's what they do to everything. And, you know, again, that's it was rational it. in that, you know, in that. In that context, it was quite the rational thing to do, and it served them really well. I should say, you know, it saved right. them; it definitely saved them. But its its legacy in terms of development is horrendous. It's
1: terrible. Truly, yeah,
0: truly horrendous. Yeah. Um,
1: oh, that's really fascinating. It's really
0: interesting talking to you about this. Yeah, it's interesting. I didn't. Really, I'm not really a historian of Spain or England, but it's, uh, it's it is interesting knowing that the Spanish. I mean, you know, you can kind of see it uh, a little bit uh, in the way yeah. that, in the way these these empires have developed. Um, I want, to, I want to talk a little bit about the modern implications of of your book and I think that um, I've been uh, researching a book on the Vietnam War recently that I'll probably never write and I've been listening to uh, these wonderful recordings that they have on the web of uh, academics talking about development in Vietnam. And of course it's all going to be done by 1974. Uh, right. you know, <laughs> and <laughs> land reform and Let's that's going to do it just like that. And, right. and, 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 now you can, you use it, you, you know, and then, and then in the early 2000s, sort of late uh, uh, 1990s, you could hear the same sort of thing. We'll go into Afghanistan or Iraq. And, and what we'll do is we'll, uh, you know, we'll implement some reforms and then um, well, development will proceed apace or you will hear the, uh, I guess it's the, Is it the World Bank or the IMF say, yeah, we'll loan you a whole bunch of money, but it's contingent on you pursuing the following policy of liberalization. And once you do that, well, then everything's going to be done by, you know, 2020. And you'll be, uh, you know, a uh, full-fledged
2: liberal. uh, Iraq,
0: right? Yeah. So uh, I think a lot of people, well, um, what do you think about that?
1: (laughs) Well, I think there's... Um, I have a couple different thoughts on this, so I hope I don't go on too long. No, go ahead. But it's one of my favorite topics. (laughs) um, For one thing, if I back up a little bit, there really wasn't, up until like the early 1800s, all countries were pretty poor. (laughs) I mean, there was like... That's
2: true.
1: Or, you know, if you look at like a graph of what we estimate, you know, world income, everyone was poor. And so it wasn't until the Industrial Revolution where some countries started to break out. And it wasn't until um, early 20th century when we started having national um, national accounts. And so we sort of knew anecdotally that, you know, you would hear accounts of travelers that went to Paris or went to, and you'd hear like, oh, wow, they got this and they got that. And so you knew that they were perhaps richer. But it wasn't until economists came up with actual numbers and um, that people could rank the different countries and realize, wow, we're really far behind, <laughs> And uh, it actually made some countries really mad. It made New Zealand really mad because at the time it was considered to be really bad to have really um, unproductive and have service industry. So they were furious at economists as a lot of their economy was service related, which is funny because nowadays that's actually a good thing. Um, Mussolini was furious that Italy was considered so underdeveloped relative to other Western European countries. So it was some, you know, plot and... So I think it was a recognition that, like, there is this thing about there is this thing, development, and um, some countries are more developed than others. And then there was the, I think there was a couple things that made people realize that maybe we can do something to speed along the process. So you have the Russian Revolution, and while I think there's a lot of paper tigerness to the to the Soviet state too. I mean, that's sort of weird to say, given, given what happened in the Soviet state. But what I mean is I think it took a while before I realized how unproductive the system was. But for a lot of outsiders, like I had a student from Ethiopia, and he was telling me, oh, Stalin is, is really – I mean, he's just – he's a real hero in Ethiopia. I'm like, really? Wow. And he's like, oh, yeah. I mean, Russia went from like this backwards feudal country to, to standing you know, toe-to-toe with the United States. And,
0: um, so it, and to I'm a backwards like, industrial yeah, but, company. A country.
1: Yeah, I was like, well, well, what about all the and so? But I think for developing countries, it was this narrative that we could we don't have to take hundreds of years. We can do this. We can catch up fast. And also, I think probably a little bit the Keynesians and the Great Depression before with classical economics, the idea was you fall into a depression and that's it. You wait until you know wait till things work themselves out. Keynes came along and said, no, the government can do something. So once that came, got in people's minds, if the government can do something, they should do something. And so this was used by a lot of post-colonial, uh, you know, like newly independent sub-Saharan African countries as a narrative. It's a very powerful narrative that we're going to catch up. We've been held down by the colonialists, which is probably true, um, and we're going to catch up, and we're going to catch up quick. And I think there's also a human, it's just human nature to want to 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 want do things not take the time that might it, it might take to do something and I saw this the other day I saw a sign in the in the city that I live and it said lose 30 pounds in a week, mm-hmm. call this number. And I thought, 30 pounds? You'd have to cut off a body part. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like 30 pounds. But I thought, there's probably desperate people who are thinking, excellent, if I could just get this done in a week <laughs> rather than taking, you know, a couple months. Or, so I think there's this human nature, something in human nature. We want to—we want shortcuts. We want to figure out how to do it fast. And development economists have not, unfortunately, been immune to this and they don't seem to learn much from history. We, Even though it took... We sort of collapse down our own history. We forget our own history. Hernando de Soto is, is, has a fantastic book called *The Mystery of Capital*, and he looks and finds out that almost no one in the United States knows the history of property rights in the United States. And we thought it was like, well, we did it. Why can't you? You know, you guys just mm-hmm. create a property system. We found out it was really, really hard to do in the United States. It took many, um, many, many generations. And in fact, like George Washington asked his lawyer what he should do about the fact that there was constant squatters on his territory, on his on his estate. He's thinking of evicting them and the lawyer said, Don't do that. They'll just come back and burn your house down. And there was a Supreme Court justice in the early United States who said, It looks like we're never gonna figure out this property rights situation. We'll always be a nation of squatters. Mm -hmm. And so if you look at the how difficult and how messy and nonlinear it was in the United States, it's amazing. But we think we forget about the historical part and we just see the end result and think, well, why can't these countries just do it? Just, um, the, the great paper by Lant Pritchett and Michael Wolcock and they, they call this phenomenon called skipping straight to Weber. And it's like, just, just mimic what we did. Mm-hmm. You know, just copy what we did and ignoring the fact that these institutions are coming from from nothing, they're not coming from an internal historical process of trial and error, of political struggle, of hundreds of years. And so there's this tendency to overpromise and to somewhat believe the overpromise. Like this time, yes, we don't really know how to build markets and states, but we're going to do it, and we're going to do it fast. Mm-hmm. And of course, that's very palatable. That's very attractive to states that are poor. They're, you know, they want to hear, how can we do this quickly? And I don't think you have to completely reinvent the wheel. Obviously, you can learn from other countries' experiences and stuff, but I think there's something to be said for the fact that, you know, it, it's going to take a while. Culture changes, for one thing. Um, you know, just, just putting these institutions on poor countries doesn't mean then it's going to work well. <laughs> I think that's something that we found. But we haven't seemed to learn. I mean, there's one thing, the one point that we make in the book is Douglas North argues that economists have not taken to heart the fact that um, institutions matter, and I think they have now to the, to a good extent, sort of focused on institutions. But his other um, thing that he had to say was that we haven't taken into fact that time matters, and I think that development economists want to promise, you know, sort of overpromise about what what policymakers can expect, and it leads to, you know, no one wants a no one wants an advisor that says, "Well, just wait for a couple hundred years, and you'll probably be richer," mm-hmm. you know. It'll probably take 200, 400 years, but, you know, yeah. you'll get there. Yeah. No one wants to hire a World Bank consultant that says that. No. Um, so they want fast results. And the problem is it's, it's not based on anything institutional and historical, political in their country, and mm-hmm. it, it doesn't
0: take. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, we can kind of see that all around us in a way. I, you know, a, a good example is that is the, the role of time. A, a friend of mine said, you know, it's, it's really wonderful what's happened with gay rights in the United States over the you know, last, say, decade or so. Of course, it started in the 60s, so it's been a little while already. But you know, gay marriage, I remember when they started talking about gay marriage, I was like, there's no way. But it turns out people changed their mind, right. or at least half of them did pretty quickly. And, and, uh, but, but this friend of mine said, you know, it's gonna, two, problem, one generation or maybe two will have to die before gay people are equal in the United States. I think he's right. right. Yeah. And so what's that mean? Yeah. they generations now, 50 years. It's mean, so just 100 years, maybe 100 years from now. People will think, well, just not, it won't register. Uh, Absolutely. You know, but, but it's not going to happen tomorrow. It's not going to happen the next day. <laughs> yeah. People have to die because they hold the, you know, my mother, of blessed memory, would, would not really have liked gay marriage. <laughs> so let's put it that way. Right. And and she would not change her mind, even given this really rational argument. That just doesn't count. She wouldn't feel yeah. it. And so – uh, you know.
1: You're absolutely right. It's generational change, and it yeah. takes a while. You yeah. can't just impose it and expect it to take.
0: Yeah, Yeah,
1: um, right. yeah you see that with racism, too. I mean, I love my grandparents, and I think my grandfather turned out to be pretty non-racist uh, for his generation, but, like, my grandma, I didn't realize until she was, like, very old that, like, Oh my gosh, she's pretty, she's really quite racist. Yeah, yeah, yeah and yeah, like uh, it Mike. wasn't until she actually got Alzheimer's and she forgot that she was racist. Right, yeah,
0: was really, but since was the actually feelings really that you have; their sentiments. You know, you really can't get rid of them very much. It's like when you feel gross yeah. when you see a spider or something. I mean, it's like at that level. And you know, yeah. my, my father used the N word in free flowing speech a lot, and and he didn't think a well, thing about it. And yeah, and and you know, of oh, blessed memory again, and he, and I don't think he would be, you know. Keenum, still around, you no. Know, still around, no. He wouldn't be keen on gay marriage either. Although I think he might be more liberal than my other. But anyway, to get back to this sort of a very contemporary meaning for your work, and that is what when we go over and we talk about nation building and stuff. What can that sure, possibly what, mean?
1: That's a that's a good question because it's hard. Like I was saying before, about you know, do you hire a consultant that says it's just going to take a long time? But one thing I think you can look at is you can be more, cog- you know, to, to have a more institutional, or not institutional, sorry, more historical, better historical idea of what actually happened in our past. You know, how long it took the United States to figure things out, how long it took England to, and those are the two good sort of good cases, right? Those are the mm-hmm. ones that went to the fastest. Uh, Russia, you know, what happened there. To have this in mind and to to try to come up with, Solutions for development that take into account where that country is actually at. Mm-hmm. So some say some sub-Saharan African countries have taken to um, farming out taxes, which I find amazing. Yeah. And I mean, because this is this is exactly what every European country did uh, when they didn't have the institutional capability sure. to, to so the Russians. to do you know, collect taxes themselves. And uh, it's actually, from what I can tell, it actually seems to be working. And so sometimes you might not. Sometimes you might want to go for what's second best rather than go straight to, like I said, straight to Weber, straight to, yeah. or they call it also straight to Denmark. They just pick it's like straight a. Straight to
0: Denmark, right. You
1: know, yeah, straight to Denmark, where, you know, choose something that, you know, is, that makes sense with the level of capability that they have there. Look to history for how these things were resolved. Um, not just expect them to have all of the, the institutions and the infrastructure and stuff to be able to do rich country. Solutions. Mm -hmm. So I think we need a lot more. uh, We need a lot more humility. We need a lot better understanding of history. And I think we have to um, be more creative and not just assume. I mean, just when I first interviewed, when I got out of grad school, I had an interview with someone from the World Bank, and she was telling me about some police reform project that they had that worked so well in New Zealand, and they were shocked because it worked really poorly in Mexico City. <laughs> and uh, it was just overtaking with corruption. And I was just looking at her thinking, New Zealand and like rankings of corruption, New Zealand is always like the least corrupt country in the mm-hmm. world, one or two. And Mexico is, I don't know where Mexico is at, but it's not one or two, right? It's way down, way down the list of rankings of corruption. So why would you think that you could just take a reform that worked well in this rich developed uncorrupt place and just copy it into a place you know what i mean it's like that, oh, that level of that level of error just seems seems shocking to me at the time like what went wrong that you guys didn't think of, think that through
0: yeah uh, and
1: yeah. you're admitting to it <laughs> yeah you know yeah i don't so know I about- think
0: I was going to ask you, uh one, one of the policies is very controversial, and I don't really know what I think about it because I don't know uh, very much about it or how it's implemented. I mentioned it before, and that is, I guess it's the World Bank uh or, or the International Development Fund. I, I, forget, I forget what it's called. They they will loan money to uh, these developing countries, but they always put strings on it. They attach strings, and the strings are usually about liberalization of markets. Yeah, And, and so, d- d- does your research suggest that that's kind of a a bad idea that is linking the loans to liberalization because if they did liberalize their markets, the markets wouldn't work. Yeah. If you see what I mean, I
1: think, yes, absolutely. I, I understand the strings and I understand what they're getting at, but it has not brought about, um, the expected outcome that they were hoping. And I think that's in good part because of stuff that we talk about in our book. I think you're exactly right. So I think focusing more on, um, Not just, you know, not just neoclassic, certain neoliberal, you know, get the state out, get the state out, but realize that maybe the state needs to come out in some areas, but the state needs to be much more capable in other areas. Mm -hmm. And, of course, that deals with tricky issues of sovereignty, too, and Mm -hmm. that's hard to do, but I think, you know realizing that just reducing this, you know, you can't deregulate before you regulate, I think we say in the
0: book. Right. Yeah, that's right. Um, that's well, you that's know, very well put. Some of these states aren't deal. even able to regulate. Yeah, they have
1: great right. laws on the books. You look at Mexico's laws, they're wonderful. Yeah,
0: yeah well, They're the beautiful. But yeah.
1: None of them are, you know, not, I should say none of them. A lot of them aren't enforced. So mm-hmm. the question is, um, you know, not just liberalizing on paper or whatever, you know, getting actual state capability and how do you do that, you know, increasing tax revenues. One of my students asked me yesterday, well, why don't they just tax more? I don't understand. And this was like a very poor country. I was like, well, oh, I know oh, what it was. It was Venezuela, um, which, of course, has." Ma- they said, why don't they just tax the rich a lot more? Oh, yeah, if it were only that easy. Um, you know, there's massive tax evasion There's mm-hmm. uh, massive rent-seeking, corruption, so many different issues. So a lot of these countries do not have the ability to tax very well.
0: So, mm-hmm.
1: um finding that, finding ways to solve that would be a lot better than just sort of, you know, getting the government out of things.
0: Right. So so what, What you know, this kind of leaves us sitting on our hands or feeling kind of <laughs> glum about our ability to help. But what can we do to help? I mean, I suspect we want to help. I want to help, you know. I, I'd like everybody to be able to go to McDonald's if they want to and vote. So how, how do we help?
1: <laughs> well, this is going to be from, this is perhaps more just my, my views and not necessarily directly from the book, but um, I don't know if I'm speaking for Jerry on this, but I think a lot of times we like to help, but we don't like to think about the follow-up, the follow-through. So a lot of us, and myself included, have given money to charity and felt good about myself for giving money to charity, but I never necessarily follow through to make sure, you know, how are they spending their money, how are their finances, what are they, you know, is, is the act of doing it and you feel better and you go on with your life. Um, I think it was. I think it was. Lam- no, it was Bill Easterly who said um, a prominent World Bank critic economist who argued that um, the IMF has the IMF programs. These neoliberal programs have been good for everyone but the patient. They've been <laughs> very good for the World Bank. Yeah, it's you know, the IMF, or right? IMF. The World Bank has twelve thousand plus employees. It's been very good for those bureaucracies, but it's been very very bad for those countries. Yeah. They're, they're on merry-go-rounds of of debt that they're never getting off. And so I think, you know, instead of feeling glum, I think the first, um, you know, it's, it's cliche, but the f- first thing you have to do is realize you have a problem that might be working out really well for the bureaucrats, for the technocrats, but you're not actually doing anything helpful. You're actually making things worse. So just the realization of that, I think, is, is, is a start. And also, personally, I think that one of the best things you could do is to trade with countries. Mm-hmm. You know, instead of imposing... Uh, instead of giving aid, instead of giving loans, instead of imposing, you know, how are you going to use this money stuff like that, let them decide how they're going to use the money by opening up our markets to them. Yeah, you know, And so we give all this aid to sub-Saharan African countries when really if we just completely open our markets to sub-Saharan African countries, it would be a huge difference. That's something that Britain's actually doing. Their, their aid agency, the DFID, is, is um, starting to focus more on trade rather than uh, aid. And because it rewards entrepreneurship, it creates wealth, and it allows them to the agency, the opportunity to to create it in the ways that they want. Mm-hmm. And that's how most countries have gotten rich, mm-hmm. not through aid.
2: Yeah, no, that's right. And, that's uh, right.
1: So I think there are ways, and but I think we like to just give aid and feel better and feel like we've done our job. And you know, if they if we if they don't get rich, then we just blame it on them. Like, uh well, I guess they're you know whatever whatever problems they have right um but i think that you know giving them the opportunity giving opportunity is always better than just giving out money
0: yep um, yep yep so that's that, true.
1: And like i said i don't know if the the trade part of that if jerry would i think he would agree but that's just from my uh work on development that's what i that's what i think
0: mm-hmm. well i i agree a trade is empowering aid is not I don't think yeah. there's any doubt about that. So, anyway, we've taken up a lot of your time, Robin. I want to thank you very much for being on the show. We have a traditional final question on the NewBooks Network, and that is, what are you working on now? Well, that's
1: a good question. It's been so... This book project, when we first talked about it, we thought it was going to be about a year long, year and a half. And it turned out to be,
0: <laughs> the long process of this book. How wrong yeah. we were.
1: It turned yeah. out to be eight years. They're all eight
0: years. That's the standard. Yeah. <laughs>
1: so now it's sort of like um, coming through something going, okay, now what?
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, my husband and I lived in Mexico for a while, and we would really like to to write a book. Um, I teach a class in Mexico, economic development, and when I created that class, I realized there's really no good books on the political economy of Mexico in modern times. Uh So I'd sort of like to take um, some of this book, which ends in the 19th century, and update it to a certain extent, Uh trace through the colonial legacies, talk about how, you know, talk about some of the major problems that Mexico has now. And another thing that I'm doing with a former graduate student is she has a lot of um, sort of municipal and household data on crime, investment, human capital, and I think that's a really, really interesting topic right now, that the levels of crime um, are just astounding in some places in Mexico mm-hmm. because of yeah. the drug trade. And so we're going to look and see how crime affects like new investment, how it affects kids' decision to stay in school, things like that. So still focusing on Mexico, but um, just investigating it from different angles.
0: Hmm. Well... Uh, good luck with that. It sounds fascinating. You know, Mexico is an absolutely beautiful place. And I just, yeah, I envy yeah. you. Um, you know, I always say, you know, I don't know how I uh, chose to study Russia, but uh, when I studied Russia, I ended up in Russia. if you see what i mean it's a great place too though but i ended up in russia russia's fine i like russia it's nice anyway so let me tell everybody that we've been talking to robin greer today about her book which she co-authored with uh, jerry huff called the long process of development building markets and states in pre-industrial england spain and their colonies robin thanks for being on the show
1: Thanks so much for
0: having me. It was a pleasure. Uh, absolutely. And let me say to everybody who listens to this podcast, thank you very much for tuning in, and we hope to see you next week.